Welcome to the Actionable Futurist Podcast, a show all about the near-term future with practical and actionable advice from a range of global experts to help you stay ahead of the curve. Every episode answers the question, what's the future of? With voices and opinions that need to be heard. Your host is international keynote speaker and actionable futurist, Andrew Grill. In the race to dominate AI, we've seen our data privacy, democracy, and even our human rights impacted. To understand what brands and consumers need to do to fight back, I spoke with Anton Christodoulou, Group Chief Technology Officer at leading experiential design company, Imagination. Anton is responsible for overseeing Imagination's global technology strategy, project and service delivery execution to deliver immersive, engaging, and measurable experiences to clients including MasterCard, Ford, Major League Baseball, Jaguar Land Rover, and Shell. Anton is a co-founder of the Trust 3.0 initiative, a data privacy advocacy group convening the brightest minds in privacy, AI, and technology to champion responsible innovation for a safer society. I'm proud to say that I'm also part of this timely initiative. I started our discussion by asking Anton more about Trust 3.0 and why it's been set up. Trust 3.0 really came out of a gap in the market in terms of how data privacy is being addressed in, in the current landscape. There are a number of privacy advocacy groups helping consumers protect their data. What we really believe is in order for this to be implemented in the way that it needs to be, we need to make this accessible and practical for brands particularly, but companies generally that are dealing with, I would say huge amounts, but any amount arguably of, of customer data and, and ensuring that they are doing it in a way that is transparent, fair, and essentially enables a customer to feel comfortable interacting with the service. And I think the key here is, although it is absolutely for the end customer, there are real benefits to brands in ensuring that the data is stored, managed, and made as transparent as possible from a value exchange and a marketing perspective as well. Um, And even from a security perspective, because if the data is handled and managed in the right way, it actually makes it much harder for bad actors to get access to that data as well. You're a charity organisation, so you've got some really interesting people involved in that. There's a bunch of regulation around this. What's the need for this? You said there's a gap in the market. A regulator's not doing enough, a brand's not doing enough. How can you possibly, as a third party, influence some of these big brands and government decisions? You've got two challenges. You've got the consumers on one side who predominantly are potentially scared. They want access to the services but don't really understand the implications what we've seen in the last decade or so is that consumers have essentially just willfully given their data over without really understanding what the impact is but are becoming much more aware and much more concerned on the business side businesses are are being hacked and so there are organizations and and certifications such as iso 27001 which enables you to deal with the security side you've got um, b corp which enables you to address sustainability which again you know even 10 years ago there were only a few very large organizations that were really taking sustainability seriously however there isn't an organization that's specifically looking at working with companies or brands to ensure that the data 
privacy side of things is properly handled. And at the moment, it's being very much left to individual brands and, and companies to decide how they deal with that. And you, if you look at someone like uh, Google, who have become much more transparent, but essentially, you know, live on customer data versus someone like Apple, who have taken a very, very stringent data privacy approach, but also use that as a, as a marketing tool. So where will you interact? Where will you interface with the brand side of the world and the consumer side of the world? The plan really is to primarily work with brands, which is what we're doing now. And it's it's to really work with brands to help them understand what frameworks and approaches they need to implement. So although this is ultimately solved through some form of technology infrastructure, the focus really is on identifying what are the frameworks? What is it that you need to implement in order to ensure that your customer data is stored in the right way, it's controlled in the right way, that there is transparency around the way that that data is being used. And then once you've kind of built those frameworks, depending on what their particular service they're providing, is looking at then how you implement a technology framework that enables that to happen, not at a, a kind of regulatory level, but basically within the layers of the services that you're using. So that obviously there's still a layer of ensuring and making sure that those services are correctly implemented. But once they are implemented, brands can feel a lot more confident, a lot more comfortable that they are managing and using customer data in the right way. And more importantly, they can then start talking about that to their customers to say, you know, if you are interacting with us, if, if we're providing a service to you, we are doing it in a way where we are protecting you, we're protecting your data. How far they take that is is, is entirely up to them. They could go for a completely decentralized and anonymized approach where you're able to consume the service without the company that's providing the service having any knowledge of you or what you do. Um, the kind of most extreme example would be something like Signal, which obfuscates literally every step of, of the process down to kind of where a call is made, when it's made, and for how long, as well as obviously all the data that's required and the conversations themselves, versus someone like WhatsApp, which actually stores all of that data except the conversation versus just being more open about kind of how you use that data will you share it with third parties and and we're kind of at that point at the moment is that most companies now have some sort of privacy policy they're encouraged to make that privacy policy as clear as possible although you know most people still don't read it or even understand it however clear it is and even if they do typically as best as you can tell the main question is are they sharing it with a third party or are they just using it for their own purposes this takes it a lot further and makes sure that they're only essentially using the data they need potentially only using the data at the point that they need it and as i say it may even be that the data they're using is completely anonymized so they're using it purely at that point to provide the service and then essentially they'll just continue down that path what they provide as a value add is the service itself not the mining and exploiting of that data in order to use it for any other purposes how would you describe Imagination? Are you a marketing agency? We're an experienced design company. We have been designing and building experiences for brands for over 50 years. We started predominantly in the sort of automotive space to some degree. We launched the original events at uh, the Millennium Dome, the O2. We did the New Year's Eve celebrations for Sydney for nearly a decade. We launched products and services for a variety of different companies. We run large physical events as well as either physical, uh, digital and virtually integrated events. So for example, recently we launched the new European made EV for Ford, uh, which was a purely virtual event using pixel streaming, 
to be able to enable people to drive the new car before um, it's actually available to the public and be able to, to order that. So we are, whether it's a physical event through to a completely uh, virtual event, we are handling our clients' customers' data and we're using that data often to create kind of personalized services. Our focus is always from an experience design perspective is how can you create the best possible experience for the end customer of that service? Your close work with brands, you've really realized that your own clients need to be privacy trust assured. So is that why you've gone ahead and looked at the Trust 3.0 initiative? We have always taken how we handle customer data very seriously. We have applied and do apply the various regulations around the world like GDPR and CCPA. That's kind of for us a kind of baseline that we would do anyway. What we're looking at now and, and being aware of where the market's going is looking at ensuring that when we're working with clients in the same way in the early days of kind of the sustainability conversation, as soon as they kind of come to us and say, actually, we want to build this with a slightly different framework. Maybe they want to launch a a product or a service that actually focuses on data privacy, or they want to make it a key tenet of their marketing strategy as as Apple has. We have the ability to, one, obviously be able to uh, provide the expertise, the training, and ultimately, if required, the certification. We may certify ourselves, but we may, you know, may also work with brands that that want to uh, to be able to do that themselves, as well as our own platform, which handles all of the customer data for all of our clients. We want to be prepared for the future and adapting in advance of what's coming, rather than being reactive. You mentioned before decentralized systems. I'm really interested in decentralized identity, also called sovereign identity. So where will the decentralized identity platform where consumers control their own data, where will that fit? And will platforms like this give consumers the power back of handling and managing their own data when it comes to trust and privacy? One of the reasons that I got involved with and, and uh, one of the co-founders of, of Trust 3.0 is this is actually, for me, a, a decades-long passion around decentralization. Decentralization and, and uh, the way in which it empowers users has been something that's been talked about for probably at least 20 years, but certainly the last 10, 15. However, we weren't in a position, the very broad way, the internet itself was still dealing with much simpler challenges like how do you stream a video to a browser, which obviously we all do and enjoy now, but that took a surprisingly long amount of time to fix. Consumers generally don't necessarily want to own the data themselves. The analogy we used recently is you might want to rent a car, but you don't necessarily want to own the car, but you do want to know that the car's insured, that you know you, you can drive it safely. I think a lot of the consumers don't necessarily want the hassle of total ownership, although they should definitely be given that option. What they do want is to know that the data is being handled in a secure and transparent way. And and going back to your question on decentralized identity, there's real benefits to having completely decentralized identity. And I would go further as to say having uh, anonymized, you know, decentralized identity so that you can essentially prove who you are and that you have the ability, for example, to pay for a service or to consume the service safely without necessarily the service knowing exactly who you are. If a bank has a trillion dollars in the bank, then that's a much more attractive target for somebody to come and steal all the money from that bank. If there is actually a trillion banks, all with one dollar in it, which essentially is a kind of principle of decentralization, decentralized data ownership, the attack vector is much, much harder. It's much less attractive. And therefore, 
brands are less likely to see the kind of data hacks that we still regularly see. I mean, I think there was there was another recent big data hack. Individual users can be more confident that they've got uh, control of their data, while brands and bigger companies can have more confidence that actually they're less likely to essentially have the data to be compromised in the first place. I'm going to speak with Marie Wallace in a few weeks from Accenture, and this is her focus. She runs Decentralized Identity for Accenture. How far away are we from actually having this where consumers can actually very easily do this and it's frictionless? Because I think at the moment, it's a bit like when you first start getting involved in cryptocurrency and having to set up wallets and authorizing things. There's just so much friction there for the consumer. They think, oh, it's just all too hard. Is there technology out there? Are there processes that are going to make this really easy? And, And to my first question, how far away are we from this really? It's a really good question. I think the biggest barrier to this, despite the fact that it's been possible for many years, has been exactly that issue. Going back to the question to a consumer, do you want to own and control all your data? Yes, I do. Okay, here's the key. Keep the key in your pocket and make sure you don't lose it. But if you do lose it, all of your data that you own is gone. The people that cut the key and and created the safe for you will not be able to get into that safe. Then you go back and ask the same question. So you want to own all your data. It's like, well, yeah, but could you just hang on to the key for me or a copy of the key just in case I lose it? And I'm like, well, we can do that. But bear in mind, then you might own the box and the key. But if we wanted to, we still have the key. And so Apple have done quite a nice job of, of addressing this. And I, I only refer back to them because they have actually, they're one of the few big, big players that have implemented this, is they actually give you both options. They do store your data within essentially a, a not necessarily decentralized, or you could argue it is decentralized, but within a a kind of data store, they lock it and they create a key. And then they offer to keep that key in your iCloud account, which you still have to unlock with a password, username, password and various other things. But, you know, in theory, there is still, uh, you know, an ability for the service provider to um, be able to unlock that service in some way. They give you the key and you have to store it. And then they basically get you to agree that if you lose that, then you've lost everything. Um, and I actually went for the latter, but even the version where they keep the key in iCloud is actually a very good balance. And so the technology is absolutely there. It's harder to implement. Obviously, it's easy to keep. Go back to the original analogy, a trillion records in a large database. I mean, it's easier from a point of view of the kind of initial implementation. And it's much easier to have one key for the whole thing rather than having a trillion keys. You know, the whole management of those different data stores and the way you access it is more complicated. However, the technology does exist. It's fairly well established. There are a number of different approaches to doing that. There are also, you know, a number of kind of fairly well tried and tested ways of of implementing that through two-factor authentication and device authentication and and so on and so there is a way and uh, to to implement this that gives a considerable amount more control back to the consumer or to the individual while also enabling them to continue to consume those services in much the same way as they do now i mean i would no one i think would argue unless they've lost access to their Apple account that on a day-to-day basis, they see any difference in terms of the way all of that data is stored. But nonetheless, it is actually quite well encrypted. And that's why, you know, companies like Accenture, of course, are are well positioned to implement this. I think one of the, the challenges with this is that we do not replace one poor system with another poor system. And there is a, a risk that large organizations at that kind of final, that kind of final area where they've implemented everything just right, 
and then somebody goes in and says, well, let's just leave one master key under the map just in case. As soon as you do that, you destroy the entire, it's, it's kind of basically pulling the rug from the entire system. So if you implement it, you have to commit to it. You also have to make sure, and this is where things like open source comes in, is make sure that the system that you're implementing is one that you also relinquish some control of. So you may use it, you may support it, you may develop it, you may charge for providing services and, and everything on top of it, but you need to make sure that the system itself is part of the internet. It is an open framework that everyone can use and contribute and, and, and build that truly gives us that control back without any back doors. And that's my biggest concern at that last piece is that the, uh, the worry that, wait a minute, I'm actually giving up control which is fine. As humans, we, when we have control, we naturally quite like to keep it. Trust3.0 have just released a report. Maybe we could talk about some of that. The first thing was around implicit data. So first of all, what is implicit data and why is it important? What should we be doing with it? So implicit data is all of the data that's basically being collected before, during, and after you consume a service that uh, you won't necessarily be aware of. Even before the current advances in AI, they can pretty much work out what you want. You know, they could work out that you're going to order a, a coffee in 20 minutes from the Starbucks on the high street in Sheffield, even though you may not have done that before because they have so much data on you that they can work that out. Now, obviously, some of the advantages of that is that you get there, your coffee's already ready, it's nice and piping hot, there's a table outside because they know like you like to sit outside, and that's a, like a really lovely user experience. So the use of implicit data isn't inherently a bad thing. It's the way in which it's used and the transparency for which it's used and the length for which it's retained. So if all of that data was used and they knew that which coffee you liked and you got the coffee and you got your favorite seat, but they actually didn't know who you were. So they didn't know it was Andrew. They just knew from all of those implicit data points that you wanted and, and you were able to consume that service it suddenly again changes that slightly. But that's where implicit data is the thing that people don't realize just how much data is being used, collected, you know, on an ongoing basis. That brings me to another point, which was raised in the report, this value trade-off when it comes to consumer privacy. You gave some great examples there of data that could be captured and used. So two things, where is that balance? And secondly, if we move to sovereign or decentralized identity, does that remove that level of information? And so brands say, well, we can't give you a personalized experience. We don't know who you are. So where does the pendulum swing between helpful and creepy? This is really goes back to the question you had earlier on, on uh, imagination. We are passionate about creating really personalized services for customers and actually, you know, very immersive, joyful experiences that can be made more joyful and, and, and cooler as a result of us using certain data points, whether they are um, based on you as an individual or, or the way you interact in a space. My belief is that you can create a service that is extremely anonymized to a quite a high degree, while also actually being able to use some quite sophisticated data points in the moment. It's the way in which that's implemented. Part of that could be that the data, you sort of give permission for that data to be used at a certain point, and then that data is erased. So you can provide the service at that point without the company providing it, having kind of long-term control over it. The flip of that is that actually they have all of the data, but they just don't know who you are. And so it's completely anonymized data, which is still very useful for brands to be able to improve the experience and, and even understand kind of how consumers interact with the, the brand and what products they buy. But, but they don't know it's you 
particularly you as Andrew might go to uh, a show in Berlin and then another one in LA and then another one in London and interact with those and buy certain services and products. But if they actually said, who was that person? They don't know who it is. Um, and so there's lots, and this is goes back to what we were saying earlier with Trust 3.0. We want to start not with the technology, but start with the approach and the framework to understand what is it that you need to be able to provide a really rich service? You know, what kind of relationship are you looking to build with your customers? And then build a framework that enables you to deliver those services in a transparent way, while also protecting your customers from the risk of overly intrusive or, or creepy technology taking over. So when we consider the ethical ramifications of any technology that should be baked into strategic planning for launching any new initiative, you know, from vendor profiling, test and learn, technology on its own seems neutral. It's the use case that supplies the risk. Where do ethics and innovation meet when it comes to privacy and trust? When you're building those approaches and frameworks, you need to build your own ethics framework. So, you know, obviously ethics means different things to different people. I'm not saying that you can necessarily come up with your own version of an ethical framework and then say, oh, well, I'm being ethical because clearly something aren't but I think if you come up with what your approach is and, and you're open about what that approach is and then you're implementing and using those services and honoring that then I think that's kind of where it meets if you're opaque in your approach if you're downright dishonest the ethical framework needs to be open um, and then use the technology to implement it the way you've said you have so I'm the actionable futurist, and I like to look far enough ahead to be useful. So where do you think the trust debate will be in 12 months? And what will Trust.30 have been doing to further this debate? We'll be working through continuing to build out those frameworks, working with some brands to help essentially identify the best approaches and frameworks to do that, having some sort of events and symposiums to be able to have these debates in an, in an open forum, working towards providing training and support for how you start to implement some of these things, especially around decentralization and, and some of the identity areas that you've been discussing. And within 12 months, we're really looking to get to a position where we can start to provide a certification framework. So we would do the initial kind of survey or light audit on this, and then we would create a framework that enables uh, other companies to be able to do the actual kind of proper auditing and certification with a Trust 3.0 certification kind of stamp on it. And so, yeah, that's where we're looking to get to. And then beyond that, just continue to be able to help brands and companies do this better so that we get to the point where we have a very open, fair and equitable internet. And actually, you know, when we talk about internet now, we're talking about our day-to-day -day lives, you know, we're all using the internet or, or relying on it, you know, even when we're in a very analog situation. So it's not just protecting the internet itself, it's protecting our kind of society and, and how we operate going forward. We're almost out of time. My favourite part of the show where we ask our guests a quick fire round. iPhone or Android? Oh, iPhone. Window or aisle? Window. In the room or in the metaverse? In the room. I wish that AI could do all of my... The first thing I thought of was homework. What's the app you use most on your phone? Probably Calendar. Best piece of advice you've ever received? Purpose beyond self. What are you reading at the moment? I'm listening to a lot of Lex Friedman podcasts on AI. Who should I invite next onto the podcast? Lex Friedman. So as this is the Actionable Futurist podcast, what three actionable things should our audience do today when it comes to better understanding the opportunities and threats from a trusted environment? Treat data privacy as as important as security and sustainability. Don't wrap it into those things. It's its own thing. Seek support and advice, not necessarily from Trust3, but you know from whatever sources, to ensure that 
you understand what the challenges and, and opportunities are. And in the same way that many companies and individuals maybe are looking at things like AI, look at data privacy now with the same lens. AI will probably help in that respect. Focus on it now because it will benefit you in the future, both personally and as an organization. Anton, a great chat. How can people find out more about you and your work and the work of Trust 3.0? For Trust 3.0, it's trust30.org. For Imagination, it's imagination.com. For me, probably LinkedIn. Thanks so much for your time today. Great to chat about this very important part of technology going forward. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thank you for listening to the Actionable Futurist podcast. You can find all of our previous shows at actionablefuturist.com. And if you like what you've heard on the show, please consider subscribing via your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. You can find out more about Andrew and how he helps corporates navigate a disruptive digital world with keynote speeches and C-suite workshops delivered in person or virtually at actionablefuturist.com. Until next time, this has been the Actionable Futurist Podcast. Podcast.